0: Good evening. Tonight, tonight's class, first of all, was uh, dedicated by Avram Moshe ben Yehuda, who also goes by the name Rodney Abrim, Abrahamian. And this is Lazecha Nishmas. This is an honor for, this, for the elevation of the soul of Habibola ben Nisan. Uh, may the neshama have a very great aliyah, an elevation to the greatest, greatest, greatest of heights, and channel lots of blessings to you. And only, only good, bracha, mazel, and anything—a lot of clarity and light and uh, brightness in your in your life and in your soul. Thank you for that dedication. We are going to do something this week. We're not going to study the parsha. Usually we study the Torah portion of the week. Today we're going to do something different, being that uh, next week is a very important day on the Hasidic calendar. It is the um, day of the passing of the sixth Chabad Rebbe Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the great master Kabbalist and Hasidic master who brought... The teachings of Hasidus to America and was the pioneer and the powerful force behind, beyond, behind the entire Chabad movement in the United States. Later, it uh, flourished and, exp- and exponentially grew with the ascendance of his son in law, the next and seventh Rebbe. Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, uh, who is the uh, we know the Rebbe, know the Rebbe, and this is the um, and he spread the teachings of Chasidus in a manner unparalleled to anybody before him, to the four corners of the earth. The center of it being in Brooklyn, New York. The day of his father-in-law's passing, the previous Rebbe is on the tenth day of Shvat, and a year later is when he assumed the role of leader and teacher and guide to millions of people. So every year when it comes the day of his site we study a particular Hasidic discourse that lays out the foundations of uh, the, the work that needs to be done to complete the monumental task of purifying this world and making it a home for God. And when the world will be a home for God, it will be in its perfect state, a world totally unified with itself, connected to its deepest soul, and connected to its creator. And then all of mankind and all of the world will live in harmony and peace, in true with true meaning and true true delight. And that's when life will really begin. Um, So the seventh Chabad Rebbe took it upon himself to complete the job and asked of us to participate by devoting ourselves with all of our being and all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our resources to exactly this work and based to spreading light in the world. And that's based on his, um, on this discourse that he said on the day that he became he actually ascended and became uh, the Rebbe by saying this discourse. And um, every year when we study this, we, re, we realign ourselves with this purpose and this mission. And each and every one of us plays a role in this. And we can finish. The Rebbe also told us a couple of years ago that we have already completed the task And what's happening in the world now, it's just, it's the last and final purge before the light can fully manifest and God can fully reveal himself as the essence of creation, as the essence of the world, not as some great light from the outside, but as the power that's behind all of existence and all of the material physical world. The main theme of the discourse is that God's greatest desire and want is not the spiritual worlds, not the powerful, uh, radiant realms above. What God desires more than anything else is to be recognized, acknowledged, and um, present in the physical world. God wants to be heard, listened to, and there. And that we should make him a home, meaning we should make him, make the physical world a place reflective of God's goodness, kindness, and truth, should be within the physical. And that's where our work is our work is to purify our daily lives with acts of goodness, kindness, selflessness, so that we purify ourselves and we can allow Hashem to be within the world. Now, the initial discourse. The previous Lubavitch Rebbe, I spoke now about the Rebbe saying this discourse called Basi Lugani on the day that he became Rebbe. But really, why did he start with this discourse, beginning with this phrase? It's a phrase from the Song of Songs of King Solomon, which we which we, which he expounds on. It's because he picked up, he picked up. Where his father in law left off. The sixth Chabad Rebbe passed away on, a, on, a, on, a, on Shabbos, Parsha's bow, um, this week's Parsha, on the 10th day of Shvat, Shabbos morning. He passed away. And then that Shabbos, before he passed away, and of course, maybe probably known to him, but not known to anybody else, that that would be the day of his passing or maybe known to him or maybe not known to him but the Rebbe did but even if a tzaddik doesn't maybe consciously know his actions and his deeds are in sync with a higher truth and a higher reality so when he before he passed away he had taken this discourse which he said many years earlier he had said it many years earlier but he had reprinted it in the last year of last year or two of his life, or the last few years, he had suffered from a stroke, so he couldn't speak well, so he didn't say any more discourses, kabbalistic Hasidic discourses. Instead, he would take old discourses, publish them, make copies, prints hundred and a couple of hundred of them, whatever, and disport, and give them out for the people to study on an auspicious day. Now the day of Yud Shvat is his grandmother's The day of the the yard site of his grandmother So he prepared a discourse For his grandmother That the Hasidim should study For the elevation of her soul And for whatever For this special His grandmother He was very close to his grandmother She was like the matriarch of Chabad This grandmother Rebetzin Rivka She lived much longer than her husband I think 33 years after her husband passed away and so she passed on most of the stories that we have of the Balshemtov and all of that. It all came through Rebetzin and Rivka. So her yard site is on the 10th of Shvat. And she, so he gave out this discourse to study on his grandmother's yard site. When the Hasidim received this discourse and they were going to study it on that Shabbos, turns out that their master and their teacher passed away on that Shabbos. So now this discourse becoming, instead of it being for the sake of his grandmother, became his own kind of will that he left for the Hasidim, saying, this is my will. Even though he didn't explicitly say it, this is my, like, a person leaves a will. And he says, here is is what I'm leaving you with. This is my parting message. Now, when the Hasidim took that, and they studied it, they realized that it wasn't just... (laughs) This was, this was powerful divine providence. And this was not just divine providence. This was pure prophecy. Because the content of the discourse was that there are... that, that in, 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 as holiness evolves and comes to the world, as we bring God to the world, it comes through a series of seven righteous people, seven generations. And, um, and 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 uh, what does it mean? Seven generations. It begins with Abraham, Avram Avinu, who was the first one to recognize God in a very 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 dark world. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, our first father, and Avram Avinu has after him. It took until the Torah was given at Sinai at Har Sinai. It took seven generations. Seven generations in which each one furthered the mission in making the world holier and godlier until the seventh one. Who's the seventh one? Moses. So Moshe brings the Torah down from heaven to earth. So this is what he says. And he explains the value and the greatness of the seventh. That even though all the tzaddikim We're drawing God down from level to level to level to level because we're going to see soon there are seven heavens. So when God as a result of the sin of the first sin, the sin in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve, by Adam and Chava when they caused God to depart from the world, God ran away into heaven because there was such a terrible stench coming from earth we can't smell it but the stench of sin was unbearable. And God didn't find Earth any more appealing to Him, so He, Hashem, God, removes Himself to the very spiritual realms, and then there comes these holy people, and they try, they start making the world beautiful again, and they start bringing God down from level to level, from level to level. But He explains that as long as God is still in Heaven and He doesn't fully manifest in Earth, you haven't accomplished. You need the seventh one to accomplish it. And that was Moses, Moshe, who brought the Torah down and God became now accessible in the material and in the physical because when he brought the Torah down to the world. Now, the Rebbe emphasizes that this, this whole series of seven tzaddikim happens twice in history. It happens when we, after the first redemption or in the period of time, at the beginning of time when the Torah is given. And it, and it repeats itself at the end of. It repeats itself at the end of time, which is right before, when we conclude the work and right before Mashiach comes. We also have a series of seven righteous tzaddikim. Now he was the sixth one in this lineage, so when he was passing away, he was handing over the leadership for his son-in-law, who was going to be the seventh. And that's the discourse. The discourse is talking all about the seventh one and the job of the seventh. He gave it out for, for his grandmother's day, which turned out to be the day that he passed away, that everybody should learn. Basically, he's instructing them that, that there will be a seventh. And now it's your job to take the seventh very seriously. Definitely Mashiach's job, and probably Mashiach the Seventh. Yeah. So the work is to complete the work. Implied from the mimer is that Mashiach is the Seventh. And in the work over here is that he has to finish the work and making the world holy. Now, that became the work of the Seventh, Chabad Rebbe, to actually take everything that was once spiritual and godly and make it very practical across the world, across the globe. By sending people out everywhere to find every single Jew and get them to do a mitzvah, put on any put on tefillin mitzvah, and then not even more than that. Never in Jewish history was there someone, a Jewish leader, who promoted and pushed the seven noahide laws for the Gentiles. In other words, to create a world that respects, recognizes, acknowledges its Creator. There's no person who ever did so much work in trying to implement this godly, holy thing in the world. So now, this is all part of the introduction, the the previous Rebbe's discourse had 20 chapters in it. A Hasidic discourse is usually pretty long. And they had 20 chapters in it that he printed and gave out. So what the Rebbe did was, when he became the seventh Rebbe, when he became Rebbe, he began his leadership by quoting his father-in-law and giving commentary on his father-in-law's discourse. Now what he did was every year on the, on the day of the anniversary of him becoming the leader and on the day, which is the day of his father-in-law's passing, he would again have a gathering and he would study again, the, he would give another discourse. Each time he focused the discourse on another one of those chapters. So it took 20 years from 1951 till 1970, till he made his way in expounding and explaining each each year another chapter of thing. When he finished in 1970, the full round of the, of the 20 chapters with commentary each year. So in 1971, he went back to the first chapter and gave a whole new explanation in commentary Completely new light and a great, much deeper understanding or different kind of, not necessarily deeper, but a whole different angle, so to speak, of what was spoken the first time or further further explaining it. And so he did from 1970 till um, around in the 1980s, and then he stopped, so he didn't finish completely the full 20 for the second time, but most of it is what we have. What we continue doing every year is when every year when that day comes, which as we said is next week, Sunday night Monday we study that chapter that is corresponding to that year and with the the commentator meaning with the discourse so on this year's chapter which this year is chapter seven so within the within the discourse that speaks all about the greatness of the seventh, That's the second seventh. no oh no no, oh, this year is seven, and what we do is we can choose whichever one because you have two of them to learn. So what I did was I made copies of the first of the first one that was said in 1957, and this was the first time he gave an explanation on the fir- uh, on the seventh chapter. Actually, in the in there, in not in this discourse, but in the one that he gave 20 years later in 1977. He actually makes the comment that this chapter is very special because the seventh are the special. In in, in the series of the tzaddikim, the seventh are the one, are the most important, just like the seventh day of the week is the holiest. It's the most important because this is the one that finishes the job. So this is the one this is what we're going to be learning today. Okay, it's pretty long, so please uh, run away when you feel you have to run. And uh, if you want to hang around, it's going to be a long night. Okay, here we go. Um, I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. It is stated in the Midrash. Okay, this is a verse in the in, um, Song of Songs where it's speaking, it's a love story between, It's a, it's it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, King Solomon describes the relationship between Israel and God as the love, as a, a love that there is between a husband and a wife, or between a bride and a groom, that have fallen in love with each other. And the verse opens up, the beginning of the fifth chapter of Song of Songs, it opens up with a verse, I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. So it's the, it's the man speaking, and he says, I am here in my garden. And he lets his bride know, I'm here, I'm home. Uh, looks like he has gone away, now he's back home. The Isa midrash Rabbah, so the Midrash, which is a compilation of the writings of the sages on the, say, on its place, Ligani, that when it says Ligani, I came to my garden, it means Lignuni, to my bridal chamber. Meaning the play, the Ikr Shekhinah which means to a place that I very, 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 very much cherish. A place that is very dear, dear to me. What does it mean God says, I've come to my home, I've come to my place, that my, my beautiful and desirable place? The idea is because initially when God created the cosmos, where did he desire most to be and where was he present? He, his inner desire and inner want was earth, not heaven, not the spiritual world, the material world. So that's what it means, the Iker Shekhinah, the main dwelling of God, the Shekhinah, which is the dwelling of God, tainim, was in the lowest realms, so you said it was. And then there came about the sins. Beginning with the first sin, which happened in the Garden of Eden. The first time Eve, Chava, disobeyed God, took from the fruit, from the forbidden fruit, gave to her husband to eat as well. And as a result of that, they contaminated all future generations. And not only that, they, used, they even gave to the animals to eat. So they actually brought a contamination and a, and, a, and a pollution, and they polluted all of existence, and they became a mixture of good and bad in the world. But it wasn't only their sin. The sages tell us that when we do a good deed, we're inspired to do another good deed. But when we do something wrong, it causes us to do something. It causes a chain reaction. You know, we see, we find that we're not self so we think, eh, it's only a little thing. We do that thing and suddenly we have an appetite for something bigger that's not good. And slowly but surely it starts pulling us into the wrong thing. So the same is also in generations. When the first generation sinned, it brought about that the second generation continued sinning. And so it created such a, 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 a breakdown of morality. And, and as we know that by the time, uh, you know, uh, the 10 generations were over, the world was so messed up that God didn't have any choice but to wipe the world out in a a flood, right? And the sins that happened afterwards, they caused the Shechina to to depart. They they chased God away, literally, from below higher. Now there were seven generations of sins, and they caused seven departures. From the first departure was from earth to the the first heaven, second departure, according to the Talmud, are seven heavens. And then the second generation of sin, when Cain he killed his brother Ebel, when Cain killed Hevel, he caused the, the uh, God to run from the first heaven to the second heaven. And so, the and there were seven generations all the way down to the Egyptians. And they were like the seventh generation who had the effect of causing Hashem to completely retract and to run away to the farthest, farthest, highest, most remote place in heaven. In other words, what does that mean? That if you wanted to connect to God, you needed to become extremely, extremely heavenly. You needed to run away from physical life. You needed to go onto a mountaintop and go into some kind of a monastery and fast for weeks and months and years, detach yourself from all of humanity and all of life, And maybe through deep meditations you can connect to God. That means you're rising to heaven because God is not available on earth. That's not what God desires. He wants to be available to you in your kitchen. He wants to be available to you in your bedroom. He wants to be available to you when you're in your work, when you're visiting the bank, when you're shopping, when you're on the bus. Because if He's the truth of all of existence. So why can't you be connected to Him all the time when you're doing all of your... Because if God is the reality of, of everything, then, then why do you have to run away from life to connect it? Experience God in all aspects of your life. And that's what it means bringing back God down to earth, into the concrete material world. Of how, But how is that achieved? So after Hashem was departed to heaven, then came the service of the righteous. Beginning with Abraham with Avram Avinu, they drew down and they brought down the Shekhina, the dwelling of the presence of God, lamata from up down, until Moshe came. Moshe Rabbeinu is the seventh generation and All the seven are special. That's what the Medrash says. To, to Moses, because you have Abraham, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the three patriarchs. Then you have Levi, Amram. No. Levi, Kahas Amram, Moshe. These are seven generations. Um, but, but, the, but the Medrash says that the seventh, we always find that the number seven is pre- Precious. All the seven ones, seventh is always Chavivin. And what did he do? And he drew God down from the seventh heaven down to the earth. Which is just the whole point of it. The point of it is to bring God God all the way down to the earth. Now when we say to bring God down, we don't mean to bring God. God is everywhere, he's on earth. It means to bring the revealed presence of Hashem down on the earth. Because God's essence never departed. What was departed was the revelation of Him. That's the meaning of Shekhinah, expression and the revelation of Him. That went away. And that needed to be brought back down. The Iker Hagilui. Now, where was this revelation? This great revelation, when we say that the seventh one, Moshe, Brought God down to the world. Well, where did that happen? That that happened during Sinai, during our, when the, God gave the Torah, when Hashem gave the Torah. But it, but but there it was just temporarily. You know, there was a revelation down over here, and it disappeared. But then later, right after that, God instructed the Jewish people to build them a home, and th- this home was called the Mishkan, a temporary home. It was a mobile home that traveled from place to place until the... God actually got himself a piece of real estate which is the Temple Mount and which is the, the ultimate seat of Hashem in this world. And the main revelation just one second and the main revelation was in the Mishkan which the Mishkan is the Tabernacle and, and the Beis HaMikdash which was in Jerusalem. Like it says you should make for me a a sanctuary and I will dwell amongst them okay now when God came down to dwell and that's where for 40 years when the Jews were in the desert they saw the cloud of glory they woke up in the morning went outside their tent and they can see with their own eyes the presence of God in the midst of the camp it was this big cloud and at night there was a fire burning you can see this is all everybody can see God's presence, like it will be any day or any moment in Jerusalem for the whole world to see. You will see on the Temple Mount the dwelling of God for the whole world. That's why there's so much friction now in the world over the Temple Mount. Because with being that we're dealing with right before the time, the end of days, when this needs to happen, there's so much, um, so much, such a powerful force fighting it, trying a global force to try to stop the unification of Jerusalem and the building of the Beis Hamikdash, which we, which will we'll all bring people don't even know why they're against it, irrationally. In college campuses across the world, they're all against it. They don't even know why. They're against the night. The, they're against the most important thing that needs to happen, and that is for global peace. Everybody wants global peace. For global peace to happen, that, that's where God dwells and unifies the entire world. But that has to be, okay? So we're waiting for that to happen. and We know that uh, God is going to ha- find a, a way to, to enable the, the third temple to be built so that his presence can be within the world. But in any case, when God dwelled in the temple, it wasn't just a dwelling in a temple. As a result of him dwelling in the temple, he actually dwells in every single person's heart. Because when the dwelling once it's in the physical place in this world, there is Wi-Fi connection to every heart, and then God, we all tune in to that, to that, to that dwelling, and we can all pick it up within ourselves and feel and sense the divine in our own soul and in our own life. So that, that and that's really the magic that we're talking about. We exist, we live now in a godless state. We really do. And there are moments that we have like a little bit of like a like a, a wow. It happens only from very rarely sometimes, you know. If you're searching and if you're finding, you have this moment. But the, when, but the natural state is we feel, we don't feel the divine. We feel ourselves and our... When the moment Mashiach comes we will feel this tremendous power that's inside of us, that's invigorating us and enlivening us. And we will finally recognize the true source of our existence. It's going to be unbelievable. And that's what it means that the divine is going to dwell, because the verse says, make for me a temple, and I will dwell. It doesn't say, I will dwell in it. I will dwell in them. If you look in the Chumash. So that means... when when we make for him a temple, a sanctuary, he actually dwells in our hearts. So through our, we can all accomplish this, that the divine should dwell in our heart. However, how do we draw this down, God to come down and dwell in the temple, and as a result of that, dwell in our hearts? As we said earlier, there were seven wicked generations who chased God away. So now to replace and bring him back down, you need the opposite of wicked. So there were seven saintly people and they actually were very powerful. They drew God down. But how how does every, every single person on their own draw that dwelling into themselves? That comes through all of us doing the work. And what is the work that we need to do? And like my father in law explains, he's, again he's quoting his father in law's discourse, which explains in the in the in the discourse of his of the day of his passing, a statement from the Zohar. Say, how do you make God dwell in you? How do you bring God down into this world? So the Zohar gives us the formula. The Zohar is the primary first. And most essential book on Jewish mysticism. And the Zohar says like this: the secret of doing it, the kadeskafia sitra achra, when the other side is subdued. When the other side is subdued, istalek the achra. Is when the other side is subdued, or when the other side is converted. God's glory rises in all worlds. What does that mean? That means that just like there is holiness, God created the unholy. And the unholy is a very strong reality in this world. Every time we crush the unholy, it causes a tremendous illumination the crushing of the unholy brings a tremendous satisfaction above that satisfaction causes an illumination of light and a presence of god now when we say crushing the unholy we don't mean shooting people when we're saying the, the when we're saying the crushing the unholy it means the unholy that's within our within our own heart we have powerful sometimes strong emergence Oh, um, 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 uh, uh, in, uh, uh, manifestations, if we can say, of of unholy desires, wants, which we which are generally usually very selfish, and which we want to do something which is only which is against holy against what God wants, and it's not immoral or whatever, and we feel, but it, it it might feel good for us instantly, right now. It might give us pleasure, it might give us delight, but it's not it's not a good thing. And when we deny that and say to ourselves no and we crush it, even though we feel bad at the moment, because we really, really would have liked to do so and so. We really would have really really would have would have liked to get back at someone when they said something not nice to us. We really want to like really teach them a lesson or something like that and get even with someone, or take revenge to someone, or follow a lust, or an impulse, or whatever it is. And we say, this is not what God wants, and I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. And we deny it, that's how you crush the darkness. And when you crush darkness, you create space. And in that space, God comes into the space. So what the discourse is really going to explain is that we shouldn't get, we shouldn't get disheartened by the fact that we have to struggle with so much dark things inside of us. Because actually, it's those very, very dark things that in, only when you bang that is when you can create light. You can create so much more light by fighting the demons inside of you than you can by by trying to uh, be enlightened through pursuing light. Because when you're pursuing light, you can only pursue that which you can get. You can't really get God, the source of light. To get the source of light, you you have to use darkness. And by crushing the darkness and ridding yourself from darkness. And even though you know, even though it's, not, you know, it's not like you, know, you do it once and it's gone, it'll come back tomorrow again. And it'll come back tomorrow again. And you have to fight ferociously. But every time you're doing it, you're actually bringing God closer and closer and closer into your life. And that's the idea. And he, said, he mentions two things. The crushing of the other side and the transforming of the other side. Because hopefully a time comes that we don't have to always battle with the same things there's a certain point where we begin to change our natural impulses and desires to become a little bit more refined and more elevated that they stop wanting and desiring that which is not good and they start desiring what is, what is holy. That's called transforming darkness to light. And so there's two things. There's crushing darkness. That's when it's not ready yet to be transformed. It's too. It's still too stubborn. You haven't yet. It's still too. This you can't. You can't transform it yet. You can break it, but after you've broken, it, you've broken it quite a few times. It's a little softer. Now you're able to redirect it and transform it. When you do that, then you cause the revelation of God in this world and the presence and the drawing of Hashem down. Day avoided this kafya through this subduing. This transformation mamshichim or kezeh. Hold on, yeah. We draw down such a light, that is in all worlds equal. The Zohar says that when you, when you subdue the other side, um, the light of God rises in all worlds. And the way he explains it in the discourse means, it means as follows, that there is two levels, general levels in God's light to the world. One of them is a constricted light one that shines upon each creature and upon each person and upon each world each each place in accordance to its capacity that's one kind of energy but there's another energy and that is God's infinite unadapted light which to that all of existence is equally relate to equally. No one can relate to it. When we're talking about drawing God down into the world, from the Jewish perspective, we're talking about something super ambitious. Not to reveal a little ray of God's light that is tailored to each part of the creation, but to reveal God himself in the world. That light can only come to the world as a result of crushing darkness. And that's what we mean. The light of God that's equal in all worlds. That which is equal, because it's infinitely, it transcends heaven equally like it transcends earth. Heaven isn't any closer to it. The most sublime celestial beings aren't any closer to it. Everything is equal to that light. And this light is even higher than the encompassing light. The Oira soivev, because the encompassing light today, is at least a little bit of a soivev, that has some relationship. shenkin Zed, this light, lama lagamri, is completely above the worlds. how can you get this light, How can you get to this light? Only through the service of subduing and transforming, as we said earlier. That's why, let's think about it. What did they do? We're saying that where did God manifest? In the temple. Now if we go back to the ancient temple, they did something over there, which sounds very primitive, and that they offered sacrifices of animals. And so what's that all about? And how in the world did that in any way draw God's light down into the world? So there is a very, very, very deep secret in the sacrifices that were done this was not, you know, it wasn't a butcher shop God forbid it was very holy, it was accompanied by deep meditative prayer it was was accompanied by music of the Levites what was going on? so, I mean, the secret of that is not the subject of tonight's class, we've done many classes on that, but just in general even though they did physical sacrifices, let's not change that but along with the physical sacrifice the human the person that brought the sa- the animal sacrifice was also sacrificing the internal animal that we all have within each other. Within, each, within ourselves. In other words we all have a beastly self that is looking out like a chimpanzee just for his own good. Okay? Watch a, a monkey. It's is it'll kill all the other monkeys that are getting in the way from it to uh why am I saying that? Because I watched a little documentary of the chimpanzees fighting today, and they really could be really nasty. So uh so we all have an we all have an internal chimpanzee. And this monkey is a monkey, you know. All it wants is its own, it's its own satisfaction, its own delight, and its own pleasure. And uh that monkey that 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 beast that's within us um needs to be harnessed and controlled and that's the idea of the sacrifice when they brought the sacrifice it was the constriction and it was the it was the 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 the, uh subduing that's the idea it was the subduing when one went to the temple he firmly made a decision not to follow his animalistic instincts in his his or her life, but to live with a higher purpose and a higher goal. To dedicate yourself for something bigger than my instant pleasure in my life. For something more noble, for something godlier. You know, If you dedicate yourself for the improvement of the world, it means you have to be willing sometimes not to sleep in the most comfortable bed. Not to, uh, you know... Eat always, you know, delicious food because you're busy with something bigger than that and more important than that. And that's the idea. It's the it's the surrendering of one's personal satisfaction and enjoyment for something higher and godlier. This <laughs> is what he says over here. This was also the service of the karbanis that wasn't the Mishkan the <speaking in Hebrew> the as they offered these sacrifices, they, drew, they were causing, this was, called, this was part of the work of subduing the darkness. And as when they did that, what did they do? They drew down and they brought down God's blessing, which is Hashem's light to the world. And this caused a pleasant rayach, a pleasant smell. Which is the drawing of God's light down from up down. And this is also what it says, This idea that the whole purpose of this home, which we created for God, which is a place in which we can draw God down, but how do we draw, make God very real in our lives and in the world? It requires us subduing that which is blocking Hashem from being in this world, which is our egos, and our self-centeredness, which was expressed in what? In the offering of the animal, including the, the, the internal animal, which was within the human being. But in addition to that, it is also seen by the materials that they used to build the mishkan. The first home we built for God, God gave us exact instructions, what are the materials that we should use? And the primary material that we used was a type of wood. They built the walls from wood, The beams. And they, these wood was called shittim wood. That's the name of the wood. The Hebrew name is atze shittim, shittim wood. And so he's going to explain the significance, because it's, the Torah, whenever the Torah tells you something, it's not just giving you lumber instructions. For lumber instructions, you don't need the Torah, God, to tell you. You can go go to the lumber yard and figure it out. Obviously, there were deep secrets that were being conveyed over here. Why this type of wood? So what's the idea? The wood, the beams of the mishkan were made up of Shitim wood. So the word Shitim, Hebrew word of Shita, means a departure. It also means foolishness. Because foolishness is a departure. You say someone is normal. Normal means normal. And when someone is foolish or off, they're off so being off means a departure from the middle path and that's cool now we all have an erotic an erotic um, um, foolish side to ourselves That animal that we're talking about before doesn't care about anything but of its own pleasure and in that sense and many times gets itself gets itself into big trouble like you see. Many people, they can be very, very smart people, very intelligent people, but when they follow the instinctive animal and ego inside of them, can end up doing really, really stupid things to harm themselves. And they end up in big trouble. They end up in jail. They end up embarrassed with big shame, scandals. You have all the time scandals of people that end up doing, right? Because you follow the the what? The stupid one that's inside of us. That's the shtus. Now, but when God says, and here's the amazing thing, when God instructs us to build a mishkan for him, he tells us to take, to build it from the shittim wood, which means the f- take the foolishness and build me the mishkan from your foolish side. Meaning don't think that you're going to build me a home only from your holy spiritual side. That doesn't attract me. God says what I'm attracted to is the part where you struggle. You struggle with selfish desires and wants. And when you overcome those and you use your foolishness, so to speak, your animalistic self, and you turn it around to the service of me, then you build for me a home. So it's not only in what you do in the temple, the very construction of the temple is from something called Atzei Shiten, which is basically telling you that the evil inclination that we have and the dark elements that we have in our life that cause confusion, frustration, and all this, is something that we need to realize is not just there for no reason. It's there because it's exactly with that and through that that we can make this world into the ultimate Garden of Eden that it is meant to be. We need to know that. Um, the, the people went off the beaten path to search for the Mon. That means they, they went off which means the stepping off from the way of the king, the spirit. Now the sages tell us an interesting thing. The sages tell us that a person will never sin. Since a person is essentially a human being, it's created in the image of God. And a human being is created with with this natural connection, especially the Jewish soul, which is a very, very deep connection to God. And so, what does it mean to sin? To sin means to disregard God. If you're disregarding God, that means you're disconnecting from Him. When you're disconnecting from God, and you're disconnecting from Him, it means you're, pull, you're pulling the, the power plug out of the, out of the power source. Why in the world would anybody do that? That's total destruction of on oneself. Why would someone do that? So the sages say, that a person is incapable of doing a sin, until a spirit of foolishness enters them. In other words, they, they become for temporarily insane, and in that insanity, is that they don't realize that by acting and doing so and so, I'm disconnecting myself from my source. So you see from here, that the whole power of the unholy, and the darkness, and the dark side, it's all related to this, what we call the spirit of foolishness. It's, it's this insanity that gets to us. But we need to realize that it's that very power of insanity that we need to convert. And he's going to explain that, what does that mean, converting? Converting that means that we do positive things and holy good things also with an insane drive. In other words, the balance between good and evil can't be that in goodness you're doing what's rational, what's intellectually, what you understand is correct and right. And then when, of course, the unholy gets a hold of us, then we do things irrational. What he's going to explain over here is that we have to bring the irrationality into our holy connection as well. Because you you can only fight fire with fire. That means if you try to just keep your... Reason and rational and logic is boring and dry. To have energy and power. So when a person takes... When a person gets involved in good things and in positive things, and you do that with an irrational drive, you do them to the point where, come on, relax, and you say, I can't relax. Say, so you, well, you've been working already all day. You've been working on, the, on helping people and doing good for 12 hours. No, I can't go to sleep. Why? There's one person that's still suffering. I can't. So, But you didn't eat today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you, basically, you become crazy in what you're doing. Crazy for goodness. Crazy for holiness. Only through that craziness is where we're taking the crazy side of us which is makes which that's the way the unholy works. It makes you do crazy things. To take that craziness and direct it towards towards that which is positive and that which is good. And when we do that, we can build a home for God, because God says, "I want the walls to be built from crazy wood." That I'm saying. That's what it is. It's atsay shitim. It's crazy wood. In other words, you can't connect to me just with, you know, just it has. There has to be a super rational. There has to be a drive and energy and excitement that transcends reason and transcends logic, but in a holy, good way, replacing the irrationality and the craziness to the unholy. And that's how we make it. Like the sages and, and what is the service? To take that stupidity, or that foolishness, the from the other side, to to use it as what we call holy stupidity, holy folly, holy insanity. That we should be insanely good. That's the idea. Insanely good. To replace the This is all the service of the Mishkan and when we accomplish this what do we do? we draw down the primary dwelling of God into the lower world this is what creates that in other words subduing the animalistic desires and wants that are within a person all the time and instead dedicating ourselves with that same with that same energy towards towards a holiness towards good things now the word that the Torah uses for the beam. Till now we took we spoke about the substance of the beam. It's made out of wood, the shittim wood. But there's another thing. The the wood itself, the beams have a certain name. And they're called in Hebrew, the beams are called Keresh. There's a word. Keresh is a Torah word for beams. So he, he's gonna emphasize now, taking this a step further. Because this is so, so anti... Um, What's the right word for this? This is so, like, against the logic of what people would think. Without this, we would think that in order to construct a holy, good place and, and goodness in this world, you should, only, you should look for those that are saintly and good and they don't have much evil inclination. And within them itself you should try to look for the good side in you and just develop that and then you'll have a holiness and but he's saying completely different. He says, look for those that are struggling with a lot of darkness, those that got all this all this all this stuff going on. And it's only they're the ones who can actually make this this godly place. The more struggle there is, the more the more darkness there is. Now he takes it a step further. He says the walls are made out of something called Keresh. If you take the word karish and you rearrange it, you get the word, which means, you get the word sheker. Sheker means lies. The word sheker means... Why would you rearrange it? Uh, because in Hebrew, um, letters represent energies that come together. And the fact that these two, that this word, and if you scramble the letters in another way, it makes up something else. It means that these two words have a relationship with them. That's why they use the same letters. So in English, it wouldn't work, but in Hebrew, it works. So for example, uh, I don't know which word, uh, red, but can you, you know, you can't make, well, the red doesn't have a, another combination, R-E-D, right? What else? Give me a word that has. you can change it. So there's a, it just happens to be that if a, you know, you can take a dog, dog yeah, that's right. There's no connection other than God creates the dog. But, <laughs> That's in God. But in everything else, there's no con- In Hebrew, it is connected. Because the letters are... So now, um, the word Keresh also spells out the word Sheker, which is lies. So when God is telling us to make for Him a temple and a, and a dwelling place, He says, I want you to take the things that naturally are lying, the lies of the world, and I want you to transform that into truth meaning the substances in which you're going to build from me is from the part of you and the part of reality that is deceptive and lying and a, and and that is where I want you to work and generally what he's going to explain is the entire physical world physicality is deceptive physicality lies because when you look at something physical it tells you a false message physicality tells you i am i exist physicality doesn't tell you of a creator that created it. It doesn't. If we would be living, if we would be spiritual beings, living in in the realm of spirit, it would be impossible to, to think that this existence just happened accidentally, through some kind of accidental situation. It can't. Because when you're living in the world of spirit, every spiritual entity recognizes that it has a source that it comes from. And that source has a source. And that source has a source. And the source has a source. So everybody, you, you would be tracing the source and say there must be a primary source. Physicality doesn't say that. Physicality presents, but physicality—I'm saying—but physicality presents itself as a reality that just exists on its own. Now we're used to already exploring things scientifically, so we want to know like, and we realize already, and we know already scientifically that matter is energy. And once we know matter is energy, we want to know, so how is that energy happening? That's because we've cracked the physical and seen more the spiritual that's in the physical. But even though we know that intellectually, our eyes, when we look at the world, see stuff. And when you see stuff, it creates an illusion as if there is no creator and there is no source and that things are just exist. The fact that we can live in our lives God many times and not think of a creator for a day for a minute for even an hour and then sometimes for a day the fact that let me ask you something the the fact that it's possible for us we don't forget to eat we know in order for our body to survive we need to eat we know we need to sleep we know we need to go out and make some money and these are things we recognize and we're very dependent on it. The fact that we can go an entire day and not feel a need to pray, a need to connect to our source, is because we're living in a very disconnected... That's only because we live the physical. In the physical, you, think, you can forget that there's a higher source, that's a source of your life. And that's because this entire physical realm is a deception. It's all deceiving. So what are we supposed to do about it? So there were those who thought, and they recognized this. They said, okay, that means we have to run away from the physical. We have to escape the physical. Neglect your body, You neglect fast, and and, and become a spiritual being. You can't commit suicide, but just basically, just, just run away from the material physical world, because in this physical world, this is a place obscuring and blocking of truth. So run away from it. But what we're learning over here is that's not the point. Because God didn't create The desire of God is to reveal Himself more than anywhere else in the material and in the physical, which means in those substances that are lying, He wants you to turn them around and work them and polish them, that they should be reflective of Him and not blocking. So where do we build the Mishkan? Not meaning a home for God, not in the spiritual realms. We use the lying materials, the deceptive materials. And what are they lying about? They're lying about their relationship with God. And those very materials, that's what he wants. So he wants more than anything else, those things that are the most removed from him. That's what he wants. Like we always want what we can't have. God wants what he can't can't have. And that is us. He can't have us unless we're willing to let him in. Because we can choose not to let him in. So that's what he wants. And the the higher heavens he has, he doesn't want that. He wants what is, and and, and precisely there is where he gets a thrill in being. And that's where we make him this home. So we read over here, This that, from the atzei shittim, from the shittim, what that are standing, they made crush. The teiv is keresh, the meaning of the word keresh, whom a gimel Oh, he over here in this discourse he doesn't even he doesn't even emphasize the lies from the keresh. He's already going to the next stage, which is that the word Keresh is also made up of three letters a kuf, a reish, and a shin. A kuf, a reish, and a shin. So what is the, what is what which are three Hebrew letters? Um, The Isa B'Zohar, now it says an interesting idea. It says in the Zohar that most of these letters, Kuf, Resh, and Shin, are unholy letters. Chas V'Shalom. They're holy letters, but they're letters that are seen on the other side. That means they are, even though they come from a godly place, they're ultimately God's letters through which He created the world. But the other side associates with these letters more than other letters. It means these letters are empower the unholy. Like shin oh shin, oh, not shin. But the raish and the kuf. Oh. But raish is also in the word Israel also, and you have doesn't mean that every raish is bad. You have a lot of letters with raish. I'll give you better. The word kedusha which means holy kadosh begins with the kuf, which is the letter that we say is seen on the other side it means that for whatever reason the zohar says these letters identify are identified with the powers of the unholy doesn't mean that these letters are not used in good of course they are but the ayin oh, shin so the zohar says however besides the shin the shin remember we said the word that the word lie in hebrew sheker lie is made of a shin a kuf and a Reish. so the zohar says like this the shin is a very positive letter it's a letter of truth the kuf and the reish are letters of, are letters of, of, the, of, they're not true. But the thing is like this, every lie, if it doesn't have a little bit of truth in it, then you can't sell the lie. The only way you can perpetuate a lie and, and get a lie to people to accept what you're, you know, God forbid a, a lie, is only if you, if you coat the lie with a little bit of truth. But a little bit of truth is, because lies on their own can't stand; they need to have a little bit of. So people always do. They, people always distort something. You're taking something, something that's true, and you give, and you distort it. And then, you, then it has a basis because at least there's some basis. So the Zohar says that the word "lie" in Hebrew is made up of three letters: shin, kuf, reish. The shin is the little bit of truth that's in it. The kuf and the reish, which spell the word "cold," car, cold, cold is the, is the opposite of life, lacking life. So, kuf and reish, which is kar, is the lie without the truth. And when something is cold, it's dead. A dead person, God forbid, a dead thing is cold. The sign of life is warmth. So the shin is the warm letter that goes into the kuf and the reish and adds a little warmth and a little life and a little light, but it's sustaining the lie. The shin is a real kerplet. Because it's 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 the little bit of truth that's being that's being um, supportive, so to speak, of the lie. Now, so so in this discourse, remember I told you that we're holding on the seventh chapter. So in the chapter that we're holding now, till now, this is just a summary of what's discussed in the entire discourse. But now we're going to get to the part in which he actually starts discussing the letter the the, the, the rash and the kuf, if we're saying that we're making a, a dwelling place, the walls of the temple are made out of keresh, which keresh is the same word as sheker, which means lie. Keresh means a beam, a beam, like a wooden beam, which is the same word as sheker, which means a lie. Which individually, if we take a look at the letters of, a, of the word lie, you have a shin and a kuf and a resh, means that the walls are made out of these, these letters, the resh and the kuf, the spiritual energy of the wall is the kuf and the resh. But we're building, even though it's an unholy letter, it's from the lying department, we use those substances to build the to build holy place. So he's going to analyze what is the unholiness of the resh. Why is the resh unholy? And he's going to look through the letters, and he's going to say, "Well, there are two letters that look almost like each other. They very, very similar. And one of them is a holy letter, and the other one—now, again, let's be very careful. Doesn't mean that the other letter is not a holy letter. These are all holy God, as we said earlier. But the other one represents an idea related to the unholy side. Okay. Which are the two letters that are similar? Is a dalid and a resh. Dalid." Looks almost like a resh. The dal is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the resh is the third to the last. Not only do they look the same, they also have the same meaning. Because every letter in Hebrew, also the letter itself, has a name. The name means something. So the word dalis, dalid, is spelled, is, is referred to, relates to the word dal. Dal means poor. The word resh. Also means poverty. In Hebrew it also means poverty. Rush. But he's going to explain that there's a holy poverty and there's an unholy poverty. Holiness is poor because it recognizes it doesn't have it can be it can be very rich. It can have everything, but it still recognizes it's poor because it knows that all its blessings come from above. So nothing is its, nothing is mine. I recognize that every dollar I have, every penny I have, every everything I have in my life. Is a gift from above. So I, on my own, have nothing. And therefore, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And I know that this is a gift from God, and I, therefore, I need to use it purposefully for what is correct and what is right. It's not meant just for me to have whatever. So that's the poverty of holiness. It's poor in its recognition that it's not my wisdom and it's not my insight and my understanding that gave me this wealth, or gave me this power, I know that every single penny I earned is a gift from above. And therefore, I on my own am poor. And it doesn't only mean money, it means everything you have. If you have intellect and wisdom, it's meant to be shared and taught and used. You're supposed to be a public servant by doing that, because you realize that it's not yours. You didn't create yourself with a wise brain. God gave that to you. And he bestows wisdom upon you. God gave you wisdom. God gives you uh, mon- uh, money. God gives us whatever it is, all the blessings that we have. It's meant, that's the poverty of holiness. But then there's another kind of a poverty. There's the poverty of the unholy. And that's the Resh. And he's going to explain, and really last year's discourse already explained the difference between the and the and the Dalit. And this year he's adding on a little more to that idea. Let's read inside a little bit. In any case, it says, it says in the Zohar, the ois shin, that the letters shin, um, asvin the is from the letters of truth. Ma shenkin ois is the letters kufin and ma asvin the l'umazah, they are from the letters of the other side. Mavarba, Maimir, and he explains in the discourse, sham, the neg, and ois reish, ois dalit. Corresponding to the letter resh is, or on, um, on the other side of the letter resh is a Dalit. Dalit is from holiness. A resh is from the unholy. Even though the Dalit and the resh are very similar to each other in the way they look. A Dalet and Arish both have a roof and a right wall, okay, a right leg. The Gambi pirusham, and also in their explanation, Sheshneyam Moirim al-Oini, both of them are indicating poverty. Makulmukam nevertheless, showing Shoinim Zamzella Gamri, they are completely um, they are what's it called again completely um, different. Even though they look the same and they have the same meaning, they're they couldn't be more more different than each other. dalid and when we exchange a dalid for a reish, We're actually destroying worlds. If we mix the two together, it says that we destroy the world. Why? I'll give an example. In and Hashem's name, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The word Echad has a very big Dalit. It's a large Dalit. so it is in the Torah, a large Dalit. There's another verse. It says, "Lo You should not bow down le'el acher to a foreign god. So, in the word foreign god, the word acher ends with a Dalit. Foreign ends with a resh and it's a very large race. So here's a large race, and here's a Rajdal. If you switch them, you can create a big mess. Because if God forbid someone says, Shema Yisrael Hashem, and he doesn't say, Echad, and he misses that little, little, and he says, Acher, God is a stranger or something, So that's a, that destroys the worlds. Or the opposite, if it says, do not bow down, Instead of echad. So it, it's a small little switch, but it's, it's, it means everything. What's the difference between these two letters? Now, let, now how about how, and they look in their appearance. A dalit has a little yud behind it. A dalit is like this. The letter. In the back of the dot of it, it has a little protrusion, a little point that's behind it, which is a letter yud. A letter yud is really a dot. Um, the resh is rounded in the back, so it doesn't have that protruding um, uh, little point in the back. Um, now, what does a yud mean? Yud is a point. And the point is humility. Because the point is that one becomes tiny and small. That means that a Dalit, the virtue of the Dalit, is that it has, it has um, bittle which the word Bittle means, it has the ability to abnegate itself to its source. Nullify itself that makes itself small. The head of And the lack and the and the, and it's not occupying space. That's what a yud is, a yud doesn't take up too much room. It's a tiny little dot. That's why it is from the from the letters of truth. The Dalit, not the yud. The Dalin is from the letters of truth. Because the Dalin has the humility of the yud, which is that surrender. And he gives an example. Like we find the example of a student. A student needs to be humbled in front of his teacher. What does that mean? If someone um, tries to receive teachings from anybody... Um, and they don't walk in with an, empty, with an empty head and an empty and an open mind and openness. But everything they know already, everything I know, everything I've already heard and I know, and I, I'm already very opinionated about everything that is being taught. So then there's no way that I can learn. So when you walk in to, be, to, be, to, to, be, to study and to learn, you have to completely make yourself like a little child. I don't know anything. Teach me, fill me. Later, you're going to analyze everything you learned. You're going to reread it, you're going to restudy it, rehash it. But first you have to empty your mind from everything. And, and it's not like, oh yeah, I know that already. I heard that. And I because then you're not open to hear. So you're not receiving anything because you're filled. So a student, that's the idea of the dollar. The dollar is receiving, but it has a point. It's the way it can receive from the previous letters is by it. Being humbled and small and open, they are bittel dafka unasi keili lekabolas hashpas harav. Dafka through the bittel, it becomes a vessel to be able to receive. Kamoike nu beklal sitra the kedusha. So the entire realm of holiness is that way. They are bittel dafka dafka through its nullification. u Ukeili lashpas alamayla. It becomes a vessel to the flow from above. This is the quality of the Dalet. That it has a Yud behind it. Like it is explained all of this in the discourse in the earlier Sifah. And now at this point is where he's going to start till now he was really summarizing everything that was from the previous years. Now is where he begins to explain the main idea of what he wants to explain in this year, and that is that the yud, this little point that's in the back of the dalit, is really contains in itself three points. Three three elements of humility. Three points are now converging together in the back of that dalit. The student needs to humble himself in order to be able to receive from the teacher. But the teacher also needs to do a powerful contraction so that he can teach to the student. So these two things have to happen. Because if the teacher has this vast knowledge and vast information that's not at all transmittable to the student, so it's just going to... Then it's just going to be like, boom, it's going to cause a... It's going to cause a total shattering of the vessels. So the teacher has to concentrate. Down to a point. The student has to remove all of whatever he or she knows from before and come to an absolute state of clear mind, clean receptiveness to receive. And it's when these two points meet together, you have a communication going, a true transmission and a true communication going. Without this, the teacher shrinking down to a point and the student being humble and receiving at the point, you can't have that transmission. He's going to explain that the entire realm of holiness humbles itself down to a point to receive from God. God, too, contracts his infinite light down to a point to what the world can receive. And there is a relationship. And he explains over here how there needs to be effort on both sides in this process. You can, it, it, it requires a, 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 a conscious effort to be able to both to transmit and to receive you have a relationship in the unholy they don't want the effort and don't want the work so there's no emptying of self there's no and therefore even though the unholy receives God's blessings as he's going to explain in the discourse actually they receive tremendous a lot of blessings like you see that there's the wicked prosper and they can be very powerful and very strong and have a lot of a lot of strength and a lot of ability and a lot of money and a lot of power to do but what's What's lacking over there is that there is no relationship with their source. So therefore, all that money and all that power and all that energy is very temporarily. It doesn't really, and it doesn't bring any real true satisfaction because there's no connection. There's no attachment. There's no bonding. And in holiness, there is bonding. But we're going to stop now for a little bit. We're going to continue in a couple of minutes. We'll take a little break. And we'll start to explain this idea of the relationship of the Yud and the Yud on the other side. Yeah. Okay. We shall continue a little bit. In Imam, Besif Sif zayin, he continues in the discourse in the next Sif, in the next part, in the seventh chapter. shahayud <laughs> that the Yud. imshu even though it is a tiny letter, which is Bechenaz which is bitl. It is the smallest letter from all. It is a small letter of nullification. From all the letters. In the discourse where he's talking about the quality of the Yud, that's in the back of the Dalit, he says the greatness about the Yud is that, even though it's the smallest of letters, it is also the beginning of every letter. Because whenever you start writing any letter, you have to first put a point. And from a point, you can can extend this way and that way. So the Yud has within itself humility, becoming small, but it's also the beginning of everything. So as we're going to learn over here, the actual making of one small and coming down to a point is not a is not a diminishment and a destruction, so to speak, or an elimination. It's really the point of birth for new for something much greater, and everything follows after the point. And he says it's also the chol ois because every letter. The beginning of every letter is a yud. For who, and that's why he's coming to explain over how important the yud is, and why the resh is lacking the yud is lacking this most important feature. The dalit has it; the yud does it. The the, the resh doesn't. For whom nivra The idea over here is that with the yud, the world to come was created with the letter yud. At kan so this is what the Mimer says. He Again, he's quoting now his father-in-law. And we say, even the world to come, which is the ultimate world of delight and pleasure, it was created from the Yud. So you see how much potential that Yud has. And the explanation of the matter is as follows. the In the earlier Sif, in the sixth chapter, in the sixth chapter, Over there he's explaining what the Yud is. The Azir is Garmei. And the whole idea of making yourself small. This is as it is from the student and the recipient. The recipient who wants to receive needs to make himself small in order to receive. In order for the student to be a vessel to be able to receive the influence they are is through this nullification and through the making itself small canal we said earlier if you want to learn you have to empty you have to empty your mind and you have to sit like you don't know anything this is this idea of bitl as it is at the from the receiver but in this in this next siv, in the next uh, part, is coming to explain something higher in the Yud, that the Yud has another meaning to it. And what is that? The Yud as it is not from the recipient, but the Yud as it is from the transmitter. In order for a teacher to teach, in a manner in which the student should be able to receive from him, and that the teacher should be able to give. Also requires the Yud. Why does it require the Yud? Also the same idea. The nullification. And making oneself small. But on this time, it's not from at the receiving end, it's at the transmitting end. It's from the mashpiyah. This is the only way you can give a hashpah You can give is only when, if it's to a, you narrow it down to a tiny point. And this is why we say that the point, the yud, which is a dot, is the beginning of all letters, because what's a letter? Every letter, a letter from a word words make up sentences sentences make up you know paragraphs paragraphs make up chapters chapters make up books so this is all any, any 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 teachings that have come in the world is all based on letters so every letter is a drawing forth of wisdom of knowledge and it's all contained in the letters in the words so letters are transmissions you're transmitting and this is teaching you the, be- the beginning of every transmission, the transmitter obviously has much more knowledge than the recipient. So in o- if he doesn't, then why is he the teacher? He's got, he's got the knowledge. He's a student. But what he needs to do is it's teaching you that when you, in order to teach, you have to, be able to you have to be able to narrow down to a point. And from the point you can develop. So first, you have to bring it down to a point. As we're going to see, hold on. The word in Hebrew for osios osios means letters. is from the word. The word os letter means to come. Os, which is like light, is coming. Asa morning is coming. Revelation is coming. That's what osios are. Osios are mediums. Letters are mediums for expression and for transmissions. The idea of a letter is to draw forth that it should flow downward. Every ois, every letter begins with a yud. What does that mean? That every type of giving and every type of influence. It requires bittle. it creates nullification from the giver. If you want to teach your child, whatever, homework, I'm sorry, math, uh, you want to do homework with them or something. It requires, and why sometimes it's so hard to do homework with children and do this, a lot of times very hard, because it requires you to lower yourself down into something very, very small and tiny. Sometimes it's very difficult to do that. Because you want to stay in your world. You want to stay in your broad world. So to have to like completely contract yourself into the mind of a little child and to be able to think in that, playful. Now some people who have natural, a natural knack to that and others have a very hard time in that. But that's the thing of a teacher is to be able to contract and to find... To find a common uh, connection and it, through that tiny little hole to transmit. Okay? And we say that with a letter Yud, the future, the sages say with two letters, God created all of existence. The present existence He created through the letter He, this world, but the future world, which is the world of all the reward and all the light. That God is going to give in the future, it's all created through the letter yud. What does that mean? Because since God wants it to be received by us, by all of the all of creations, he he needs to as a as a loving teacher needs to contract down to a to, to a letter yud. The inyan the inyan of the yud, who is the nullification, is garma, and making himself small, cannot What is this bitl? What is this nullification of the yud, of the influencer? Who inyanat simtsum What it really means is that you have to contract and completely remove what was before. You have to remove what was before. Because let's say, you know, the person has a lot, a lot of light. A lot of light, a lot of... And the recipient is not, you know... It was way, 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 way at, a, at an introductory level, way, way, way. So the, te- the teacher has to remove all that light, all that broad information and light and evaluate the student and evaluate where this person is coming from, what the place, and then think what they can handle. What can I teach? What can I give them something that's, it might, it's just going to be a tiny little nugget because that's all they can handle today. Only a little nugget. Oh, but in order to find that nugget in the rich, vast ocean of knowledge and information that the teacher has, he can't even find that nugget. So what he needs to do is to shut down his entire mind and take away all the knowledge. At the moment, go blank. There's nothing there. And from the nothingness, he can pull forth just a little point to teach. And that's, that, that's what it means to prepare a class. The papira class—it's not like over here because I never know who's coming Thursday. It's always different people. <laughs> but if you know, if you have the, if you have the students, so you can evaluate before, like who's what, right? And then, and then you know, right? And then you can evaluate and you say, okay, so I know exactly who's coming, what I need to teach, and how I can teach. So it's the removal of taking it all away. And then you can give. And this is what the Balshemtov explains: that God does this. Interesting thing. It says in, 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 in Bereshis at the beginning, in Genesis, at the beginning of creation, it says God said, "Let there be light." Then it says, there was light." So the Holy Balshemtov founder of the Hasidic movement. It says It says, Vayomer, Light is revelation, is powerful, it's, it's, it's kindness. God is giving light, it's kindness. So the Balshamto says, so what I understand, how can the name that is used be the name of Elohim? The name of Elohim is the name of harshness, constriction. Because We know that God's names have different meaning. The so name of Elohim means the Judgment. Light doesn't come from judgment. Light comes from kindness. So it should have said, Vayomer Hashem, it should have said the Tetragrammaton, Yudke Vavke, said ye Or, let there be light. So the Baal Shem said like this, in order for God to give a light that we can handle, He has to first constrict Himself with infinite constriction. And only then can He give us light. If Hashem would allow the light out, on the level that he sees as light, then there wouldn't be any recipients. No one can receive that light. So there wouldn't be any light. So you actually couldn't have any light any, any other way without the name of Elohim. Vayomer Elohim, the name of Elohim, which is the powerful filter and the powerful um, uh, restrictor that filters and, and, and blocks and holds back the infinite light. And only after that he or there can be a light that, that creations are able to see as light because if not it becomes blinding light and you know you can, person can be blinded by light. So all of creation would be blinded by God's infinite light. So it has to be filtered first. So that's the idea it's not understood or light in hu'or or. The idea of light is light and revelation, which is hamshacha, which is to draw forth vashpa and to give, to influence. What is it? What it says? The name of Elohim says the shame The name of Elokim is indicative. on the contraction. It's the opposite of light. The revelation. So the Paul Shemtov explains in order that there should be a light, a revelation, that requires the power of the name of Elohim, it's the power of Gevura that contracts the light. Only after this powerful contraction, there can be a lasting light, that the world is able to tolerate it and the world is not blown away by this powerful light. Now the next, now after the Balshemtov passed away, his successor was the second generation, Reb Dov Ber the Magid, the Magid. So now he's quoting, we see what the Rebbe would do by his, whenever he would give a discourse on the day of his, on the day of his, uh, uh, what anniversary. anniversary of his leadership? Yeah. When he would say the discourse, he would always quote from all the seven tzaddikim. The previous six plus before the previous six, there's another two that are not part of the Chabad lineage, but they were the Balshemtov and they're the fathers of Hazim. He would quote from all eight tzaddikim. Why? Because as he quoted from them, he was drawing their energies down into his soul. First, because he's the last, he's, he corresponds to the seventh attribute of Malchus, which is, we're going to learn over here, is the element of the moon that doesn't have any of its own light. It's just a it receives it all and reveals it all. But it receives from higher. So that's why in his discourse himself, he channels from each one of them. So that's why he always makes it an effort, I mean always you see it in each mimer that he's always quoting. Him. He puts together the discourse from Teachings from all nine of them. So now he brings from the... Balshemtov is the first. And now he brings on that theme, and then there's the teaching of the Magid. Adds explanation. The Magid adds explanation on the Balshem teaching. You see the Balshem Tov explained the first two words, the first four words. Or let there be light. The Bais asks, "Why does it say Elohim? It should say Vayomer Hashem." So the Bais says, "Because you need to have a filter to be able to have light. Because if you, if it would be unfiltered, then there would be no light. It would just be too too bright, too." Okay. But the Magid, his student, his disciple, the next teacher, asks the question, "Why does it say Vayomer Elokim Yehi or Vayehi or And there was light? What is this?" What is this? By every other time it says vayehi kain, it was so. Here it says vayehi or it was light. So what is the emphasis on vayehi or? And another thing, the Magid emphasizes: whenever it says vayehi, the sages say it means there's trouble, there's pain. Whenever you're learning Torah, and, and, and you get to the word vayehi, you should say you know that something not good is happening. Whenever you read Torah and you see the word Vahaya and it was, you should know that something good is happening. The word Vahaya is always for happy occasions. The word Vayahi is always that there is, that there is traffic ahead. they different letters the same letters. Uh, They're not exactly the same. They're Vayahi, uh, they're close. They're using the Yud, the Hays, and whatever, but Vahaya is Alash and Simcha, that's what it says. And Vayhi is a lush is, is a word of of pain. Vayihi is associated with 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 pain. Is pain. So the, the Maggot says, Well, we're talking about the creation of light. What's the pain over here? Well, light, we understand that you know uh, maybe other elements in creation, whatever, but light this is a good thing. So he explains like this. before, and the reason the Magad says is because like this. Before all of before God began the process of creating the worlds, God's infinite light filled the entire possible space for creation. Because God's light was everywhere. At the beginning, the infinite light filled the Empty space in where creation is created now. Okay. There wasn't the possibility for any existence to exist. In order that there should be able to be light below, below meaning in in creation. So God had to first remove his infinite light. Because God's infinite light didn't re- leave room for anything else, else to exist. It canceled all existence. It, nothing can exist in God's truth. So God has to remove that infinite light. This is before t- yeah, this is before everything. This is, before, this is in order to allow the process of creation to begin. His light is everywhere. God removes that light. And then, that's Vayomer Elokim. That's the tzimtzum, that's the contraction. The contraction wiped away everything that was there before. Like a wind blowing and takes away all divine revelation to the point that it basically clears a space and makes a big black hole. That's what happens. A void. It creates a big empty void a a, a cavity in the infinite. Okay? So to speak. The Chumash doesn't say it. It's hinted to, of course, in the Chomish, but it's not openly. The Arizal, the Zohar, discussed this. Now, in that, into that void, Hashem created the world, okay? So now, that's the meaning of like this, lo'shen <speaking in Hebrew> And that's why when it says, and there was light, because the, the light that we have is a very pathetic light in comparison to true light. So even though there was light, and it's lovely, This is the light. But it's really from the true perspective of things, it's painful. What's the pain? The pain is that what looks like illumination to us, and enlightenment, and unbelievable light, that there is godly revelation, it's not the real deal. Because if the... You're right. The real deal we couldn't handle. It had to be removed. But the very fact that we exchange the truth of God for some kind of a semi-revelation of Him, That's the pain. That's why the Torah uses the word, ouch, it hurts. See what's going on? The Torah is saying, ouch, this hurts. Ouch, it hurts that there is light. Why ouch that there is light? Because this is not real light. This is an imitation light. This is not the real light. Okay, to turn on the real light is going to cancel all of existence instantly because it's going to put us aware of the infinite presence and when the in the presence of the infinite, nothing can exist but the infinite. True. So the only way uh, there has to be a powerful uh, uh, this uh, restri- restriction to hold back the infinite, so there can be a world and there can be lights that are in the world. Ultimately, our work through the mitzvot that we do and through the combined human efforts, the Jewish and all the mitzvot that we're done, we we prepare the world to receive. The infinite light that we that initially we can't handle because it would cancel us. Eventually we bring that light into the world. That's what we mean when we said earlier that God wants to have a home in this world. It means that the infinite light should be brought back so we don't have to say ouch anymore. The light that we have is not a secondary light. The light that we have is the real, real light. And yet it doesn't cancel us, even though it's present. Because we learned how to how to live with it because it came about through our hard work in making ourselves godlier every day. And that enables the world to handle all this light. So v'yilashen tzar enu atzimtzum va'asiluk, shayidei zedav genasem etziyah lamata, becomes the lower light. And he gives an example on this, the Magid the, gives an example to explain this idea of this contraction. And the contraction is, he gives the example of a father playing with his little child. Or a father not playing over here, a father who wants to teach his little child. Of a man, he could be a very, very sophisticated, brilliant scientist, thinker, philosopher. He could be a real brilliant person, a scholar, wrote many books. People seek his advice across the world. People come to this very, and now he got married. He has a little child. The child is now four years old, and he wants to teach his little four years old. Like this, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a professor in college, and he's teaching like only the the brightest of the bright make it to his class. It's like crazy, crazy. What do you call it? Uh, um, uh, new. Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about... Um, give me a second here. A second here. No, I'm, I'm just very tired, so my head is a little bit slow. Um, no, I'm just looking for a certain... Um, he's a professor teaching hydromagnetic... I don't know what I was looking for. I was looking for something like that. Some kind of, like... Uh, I don't know. That I can't even... Uh, quantum physics or things like that, okay. But now he has a little four years old, and he wants to teach him. So we understand that he has to contract his mind tremendously to be able to teach this little, this little kid. But not only that, he has to also ent- enter a little bit into the silly world of the child, and he has to create within himself silly emotions because to really connect with the person, with the child. You have to be silly with him. So his mind contracts himself to the place where it actually creates silly emotions. Very immature. He gets excited about silly, silly, immature things that someone like this should never be excited about. But right now, he completely puts himself into that state. And God does that when he creates the world as well. He becomes silly with us. To create a small world that we're in. Not only that, he gets excited from the, from, the, from the make-believe world of this little child. And he joins along in the game. And 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 but but here's the thing. If he's really connecting to the child, he has to really mentally put himself into that place where. The excitements and the frustrations of that silly world are really impacting him, in a true way, as he's playing the game with him. Right? Even if they become, they're really small. And that's how we can communicate and influence his child. Teach him. Teach him wisdom. He has to enter into his world the same is also regards to the Jewish people God says your children your children to God for the sake of the souls of Israel hashem contracts himself and this contraction which was happening as God creates all of creation, this contraction, Nikra Chachma. Because we know, where is he contracting himself into? He's contracting himself to that little point, to the Yud. He's contracting himself to the tiny little Yud. And the Yud is the first attribute from the ten attributes, which is called Chachma. Wisdom. Ki hu-ayin. The Chachma is called Nothing. Because when you say he's God is coming small, it means he's contracting himself to a point of nothingness. Aldech va'chachma me'ayin say, that chachma emanates from ayin, which is the ayin of keser. Which I can't understand how they move him is that's understood from this. The kmoisha tzadech lias aziras garma metzada Talmud. All of this is teaching us that just like the student has to contract himself to be a student. In order for him to be a fit and appropriate vessel to receive the influence of the teacher, the same is also on terms of the influencer, in order that his light should be a light that can be lasting. There should be space for something that can receive His light. The only way is through the Vayehi. What's the Yehi? What As we said before, the painful experience of contraction. It's this contraction and the departure, the father's departure of his important business. Here's the thing. Imagine if this brilliant brilliant man is in the midst of working on his most important scientific breakthrough okay he's working on something and he finally this is like he's finally reaching like the deepest understanding in a subject matter and for this he's going to win the nobel pre, the, 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 the one of the nobel prizes in in in, 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 sci, in science and medicine and who knows he's reaching it But at the same time, he comes home six o'clock and he has a little child. So even though his mind is so occupied with all these rich ideas, for the time being, he suspends all of that and enters the silly world of his little child and to be there. So he can teach his child. So that requires a powerful contraction. So as we said, that hurts. It's not easy for him to do so. He does it out of his love for his child. No one else would be able to distract him from, from 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 the intensity of where he's at. But the child, that little that little his own child will be able to. So what gets God to leave his infinite powerful and to contract himself to that tiny little yud, it's his love for the souls, for his child. Hurak, even though we're not yet created, because we're only coming into being as He creates this world from this little Yud. So this is all pre-creation, where He's playing with us before we exist, which is really cool. We where we're existing in His imagination before we're really existing. Yet He's already playing with us before before we even exist. Because by Him, past, present, and future... So there's no real before and after, because He transcends time. But... <speaking language> And that's what it says in the Mimer, in the Discourse, that every letter, it all begins with a Yud. This is the Yud from where Olamaba Abba is created, which means everything is emanating from this tzimtzum, from this contraction. But then, so what does this mean? So this means that in order for the cosmos to come into being, it requires a contraction down to a Yud. Now he's going to explain why is it that the emphasis is with the yud? He created the future world. With the yud, he created everything. What's the emphasis on the future world that he created with the yud? So in the next piece, he, he further develops to explain, and this is this is this is it gets it gets very deep. The gimel, the Dalit, and the hay. And explaining what the, uh, where, where this youth is going to of Olam Abba. I'm just trying to think a second over here. Okay, you know what we're going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to learn one more. Let's see if I'm getting a very. Um, Very tired tonight. I don't know why. Um, Yeah, I mean we can do next week. We can do everything next week, but still, this is the week of Basilagani. So let's learn one more sif, and then we'll see how we're going to do. To understand this idea, because this, uh, and also to understand what it says, that in this yud, the future world was created. But all of this is leading to, I just want to connect it so we don't lose the theme. All of this is, is related to that in holiness there is a relationship. There is a father playing with his child. There is a contraction. There is a, a, an attachment. There is a, a, a giver and a receiver. In the unholy world, there is an um, experience of life but there's no relationship with the source, so it's not. We're not connecting to that yud. In kedusha, there is that intense connection with that yud, both from the receiving and from the contract, and it requires work because it's relationship. In 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 the unholy realms, God is remains in his infinite, and light emanates, or some light obviously is going to trickle down and psh, create. And give infinite, but there's no bonding. there's no. There's no father playing with his child. It's just psh, take. I, I, I had believe it or not, I had to explain the themes that are here for a, a 12, 13 year olds uh, last week. I, I, I obviously it wasn't all of this. We just talk about needing to find the yud to, to talk to them. And there was a father and son breakfast, and I had to give this. So just to, 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 to lead to the understanding of where, where this is going, I asked these boys, because they were, they were at their bar mitzvah age. You know, they were just having their bar mitzvah. So I asked these boys a question. I said, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to tell me the truth. And don't be embarrassed to tell me the truth, even if your father is there. Please try to be as <laughs> honest with me and tell me. So I ask them the question: you're becoming bar mitzvah, and there is a and I, I'm gonna give you two scenarios, and you'll choose which one you would rather have in your life. Okay? Option A or option B? Option A is that you, it's a day of your bar mitzvah, you've been waiting all your life. So this is such an important day, and you wake up in the morning and you go in and you find there's a mysterious silence in your house. It's quiet. And you're wondering right. like what happened? And you, you walk into the kitchen and, and you see an envelope. So you're running, you're excited, you take the envelope, you open up the envelope, and it's, it has your name on it. So you're excited. You open up the envelope, and the first thing that catches your eyes is a check. Okay, I'm talking about a 13-year-old boy, check. And the check is to his name. He's never gotten a check into his name. Now he's got a check, and he looks, and he can't believe it. It's $5,000. It's like, this is, this is like a million dollars. It's like crazy. So happy. Then he reads the letter. And there's a letter along. And in the letter it says, Dear so-and-so, you know, Dear Yanko Mendel, whatever his name is. Moshe Chaim Yanko. Um, you know, I know, you, I, I'm, I just want, um, um, what does he say? He says, okay. I'm so tired that I can't even remember what I said. He says, no, I'm sorry. I, 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 I want to tell you that Late last night after you went to bed, I received an emergency phone call from the company that I work for, corporate, whatever. And they said, "An emergency, emergency, that they need me to take a uh, flight 5 o'clock in the morning. I have to fly out because this is a a very something happened, and they need me on. And I'm very, very, very sorry that I'm going to miss your Bar Mitzvah. Not only that, but your mom had to come with me as well. Because of she needs some important decision making or whatever, so you, I'm, you know, I know you'll, you'll be fine. The bar mitzvah, whatever, and we 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 love you very much. And here's five thousand dollars to show that we really care about you. And that is option A. Option B is that you wake up in your day, your bar mitzvah, and your parents are. You wake up and you find them in the kitchen. They're smiling. They're happy. You're there. And your father takes you out to to to, 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 to pray. First day, you're gonna put on tefillin, and he learns with you first, and then he puts on the tefillin with you. Then he takes you out for breakfast. Then you go out with your mother and father out for for, for you know for an outing, None of the other kids are coming along. These all these kids come from families of like 15 kids, so like you know, so they <laughs> you have your you have your parents for yourself, okay? And there's no and your whole day. Then you have your bar mitzvah, and you know the party, the bar mitzvah celebration and you're taking pictures, and you're dancing, and you're having all this time of your life with your parents, with the love, with all. At the end of the day, they give you a an envelope, and you're going to ready to sleep. You're so coming home after the bar mitzvah. It's 11 o'clock at night. You get an envelope. The envelope has a has a, has a has a postcard in it, and it's written this beautiful letter about how much you meant to them in their your life and how you, you know, you, when you came into their life, you brought so much light to them and so much meaning and and how they waited all this time that you could become a mitzvah, and now you're becoming a person, and they have such high hopes for you, and, and all this written, and then it says, and then it says, I mean, and we want to give you a bar mitzvah present, and here's a hundred dollars. So I said, which one would you rather have? Option A or option B? This is five thousand dollars, but your parents weren't there by your bar mitzvah; they just had to go to an important meeting. And here you have your parents with. You. Are you? Which one is more meaningful to you? <laughs> 13-year-old boy, not an easy question. Thank God most of them said option B. There were a few of them who said option A. <laughs> they knew what one to say. In any case, so that's the difference here. There is the elements in this world that God gives them $5,000, but there's no relationship, there's no connection, there's no bonding, there's no attachment. There's no yud, there's no concentrate In holiness, there is a... There is a When you're in a holy place means that you're in a a state of bonding with your creator. And it takes effort on your end to empty yourself out from your business every day. We said before, the student needs to clear his mind to receive, but at the same time, the influencer concentrates all of his attention to give you, to play like a father getting down on the floor and playing with his child. In that, you'll you'll have that bond and that relationship. And that's the yud that's in the back of the dalit. That is indicative of that bonding. In the unholy, they're poor. You know why they're poor? Because ultimately they're also receiving from God. But they're poor because they have something so empty and hollow. Because all they have is the $5,000. But it's cold and empty and there's nothing there to it. So what is it? So you have $5,000. One day you're going to use it up anyways. It's stuff. And stuff is poor. That's the idea. The reish is poor, even though it might have a lot, but it's poor because all it has is stuff. And the Dalit has a connection. That's the idea that he develops. Now, um, this idea is going to be developed a little... Okay, uh, but that doesn't. that's not going to come until much later in the discourse. I just want wanted to put that in over here. What does Olam Abba mean? What does, mean? what does the world to come mean? What does the world to come mean? The idea of the future world is to receive reward ala on the Torah and on the service of the 6,000 years. They have an almond that the world stands. During the 6,000 years that we're in now, According to the Hebrew calendar, we're in the year 5,766 of creation. So we're almost done with the 6,000 years. So this is called this world. It could, we don't know. I mean, according to Torah, no, it's not true. Um, yeah, that... that and, 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 and everything that um, it is, it appears to be much older based on what we would say scientific uh, whatever uh, was created by God himself to look and appear that way for whatever reason that he wants it to appear that way but the Torah tells us that this is the age of creation so 5,777 so after the five thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven, after I'm sorry, after the six thousand years comes the future world. But, but here's the thing: the, the, the current time now is the time of work. It's not a time of reward. It's a time of work. It's a time of labor. And then in the future world is when we, we we reap the rewards of our labor. And that's when there's reward. And afterwards comes the future world comes as a result of our Torah and our service. And for the sake of this reward of the future world, the neshama descended from a high roof to a very low pit. See, our souls come from a very spiritual place. And our souls descend down to be incarnated in bodies. And why, why? It's very painful for the soul. Life on earth is very harsh and difficult for the soul. Why, does, why, why are we put into bodies? Because we say that, wow, that even though it's painful now, but that which we're going to accomplish and get to experience in the world to come is so worth it that it's worth to go through all the pain to be able to come to that revelation. Now, he's going to explain first how high the neshama is before it comes down. The soul, the neshama is the soul. The soul, before it came down here, was in a very elevated state. Like it says, How do we know that the soul was in a very high place? Elijah the prophet says, I swear by God that I stood before him the soul above its entire has only connection to matters of the divine that's why it says it stood before God and standing means in prayer that means that the soul before it comes down in a body is in a state of perpetual prayer we understand that when we pray we're we are in a when we're really praying, not just mumbling words, but when we are tuned into prayer, what does that mean? We're in a state of elevated consciousness. The soul in heaven is in a state of uninterrupted prayer. That means it's uninterruptedly in elevated consciousness. The soul in heaven. Then it comes down here, and half the time it's thinking about what's for lunch. And what am I eating? What am I eating? and but deep inside it's very painful to the soul because it knows this is ridiculous, this is insane. The Ein Namid El Atfila, at standing is prayer. Omakoma Kam Mata Mata. But yet the soul came down below. Babira Mikta. And it's, it, this world is. See, when the soul is in heaven, it's called it was on a very, very high rooftop. When it comes down over here, it's called that it's in a deep pit. So it's one thing to come from high up and go to a lower floor or even to ground floor, it's another thing to go from a high roof and to fall into a deep pit. That's how drastic this fall is. And the reason why God has done that to us is because this fall, because remember we learned at the beginning of the discourse, it's only through darkness and through the elements of unholiness that we get a chance to encounter God's, God's, God's very self. Not God's little illuminations. That happens in heaven. That's not interesting. To experience God Almighty Himself is only when you struggle with the darkness. And that's why the neshama comes down into this world. <laughs> because in the end, this descent is for the sake of an ascent. And what is the ascent? <laughs> she ascends higher than she was before she came down. And what's this ascent? The And what is the ascent? is what King David says, David Amelach says, in Psalms, in Psalm 27, David Amelach says, one thing I am asking from you, God. And what is the bottom line? Even though he lists like 20 things, but okay, let's not talk about that. But the final thing he says is, to gaze, to see in the pleasantness of God. That's the world to come experience. To experience the pleasantness, which is the pleasure of the divine. As it says in Zohar, the pleasantness of God means the pleasure that's coming from the name, from the tetragrammaton, from the Yud Kevavke, which we know that the main part of the Yud Kevavke is that Yud. Again, so when in the world to come we get to experience the energy and the power that's in that concentrated Yud. Yud is that tiny little dot. So in other words like this, when God created us, God concentrated all of his infinite power and infinite light, as we said, like a father going away from his business, from his science, from his philosophy, from all of his things, and concentrating to his child. God concentrates to a tiny little point. That's In other words, he opens up the possibility of finite existence. That's the Yud, that's the point. And then from that Yud, all of creation evolves. But the creations don't don't get to experience ever the Yud itself, the point. In the future world, that Yud itself will open up. And all, meaning all the love of of God, of the infinite being that concentrated himself into that point, the, that essential point will be experienced in in the creation, and that's the expansion of infinite pleasure that comes, and that's what it means olam haba, the future world. Now you say, well, why only the yud? Well, the yud is only a point. The answer is anything beyond be yud, without the, that would that wouldn't allow for us to re, to remain to remain in existence. So the concentration to the Yud and then that Yud itself is that point reveals what's there in it. You see, put it this way. When, the, when a father makes the decision to get on the floor, to take off his shoes, to get on the floor and to play like a little child and crawl and, and do all kinds of silly and play with toys you realize that what you're seeing is silliness and smallness. But what's behind it is the deepest dimension of the father's soul. Why? It's his deepest delight. His deepest delight is his delight in his child. But, now that delight the father experiences when he thinks about his child in his office, in his, when he, the moment he had his child, But when he needs to communicate that delight and that pleasure to the child, he has to make it childish. Concentrated in that childish games that he's playing is that infinite delight and pleasure that he has in his child. But it's concentrated in that little game. The child might not even see that pleasure until he grows up and understands that pleasure and that delight. So, when Mashiach comes, the world to come, is what he's talking about over here, as we're going to see later, is the un, the opening up of that little point where the infinite one has concentrated himself to a point, which that point contains everything in it. That essential place. He's going to explain the idea of what pleasure is. How pleasure opens you up to the essence of every power. This, this discourse is so deep, and deep and deep So, uh, but let's see for this it was worthy the entire descent was to come to this Olam Abba. so what is this Olam Abba? what is this world to come the idea of this delight is the idea of this pleasure like we say let it be the pleasantness And what is pleasure What is the idea of pleasure? We see below In a human soul, in a human experience we see There's a very big difference between pleasure and all other soul experiences. And every other experience besides pleasure those experiences are on the external realm of your being. Gam kemoishem, meaning yeah, yeah. What does that mean? That the experience. Okay, we have we have different soul powers. For example, we have a, we have a mind, we have an intelligence. Most of our intelligence that we constantly that we use and understand is not the essence of our intelligence; it's more the expression of our power. Emotion, we experience the tip of the iceberg of the emotion the outside of the emotions not its deep 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 inner core most of it is buried in the subconscious of the human being of emotion and the power of intellect and the power like we know a person uses only a tiny fraction of his mind even if you use your mind the real real capabilities of a person's intellect is much much bigger than what we use so all powers of the soul that we experience and that we activate are very external then there are times in which we experience great expansion of power, of energy. And that, for instance, joy. Why is it so important to have joy in your life? Because joy causes, causes expansion. Joy opens you up. Joy, when you have a burst of joy, what you'll see, when people are happy, they generally are in a They talk exuberant. They talk more. They're excited. There's energy, and they feel more. When you're happy, you feel more. You can love much stronger when you're happy. On the opposite, when a person is depressed, they're shut down. Joy opens you up. All your experiences it opens up. Uh, To the point that you see it even in your body. When you're really, really happy, you'll be singing and dancing and jumping, and so you see expansion but he's explaining an interesting thing, that even when you have joy that is expansive and opens up, it's still not, it's not the inner, inner, inner powers, it's still, what it's doing is it's expanding the external powers of the soul into expansive state. It's not yet really opening you up to the inner, deeper you. The real inner deeper you is only experienced in pleasure when you experience pleasure that's when you're it opens up Obviously, the it opens up the see pleasure it goes on to explain over here there's a difference between when a person is happy they're generally restless and jumping when a person is in a state of delight it actually causes calmness and serenity but In pleasure, one is in a very, very inner place within themselves. In joy, it's more about expression and outwardness. That's why when you're happy, you want to be with people. If you're enjoying something and you're in a pleasurable state and you're delighting in something, you can be very private and very alone. You don't need the the thing. But joy requires, you know, you want to have someone to dance with. You want to have someone. Because it's more of a... It's more of a outward um, opening and expansion. What? Yeah. All matters of soul and are very broad, without any limitations. The soul is so so pumping it's so expansive it's so it's so open that it even affects your feet it causes you to dance after all of that it's still only the external power of your of your powers the external element of your powers or in a state of expansion which is not the case in pleasure, Even though pleasure too causes expansion, like it says, to hear something good to dashin etzem Um, makes the bones, it opens you up. It's not the expansion of the external element of the powers. Like you see specifically, when a person is in a state of pleasure, they're, they're not in a very, um, a, a, yeah, that's right. You're not in an open, um, you're not dancing. You're in a very serene, quiet, calm state. But you're going into a very deep place. What's happening is you're rising up to the inner soul or the inner place, to the powers as they are embedded deep, deep, deep inside of you and you're coming, you're becoming in touch with yourself in a much deeper inner, inner place. And this, that pleasure does cause an opening. It's not that your external are expanding, it's that the pleasure draws the essence of the powers into the external powers. He doesn't explain much what he means. doesn't give examples of what that is. Okay. And where he wants to explain in that is that... Um, The experience of Olam Haba, of the future world, of the Yud that he's talking about, is an experience where the essence of the energies that God has imbued into creation, the essence of these powers are in a state of of openness and, and revelation. And that's the experience of the future world. All that is derived from the Yud, Which the Yud, however, and connecting to that Yud, is only, that's God's Yud, is only if you as a recipient also have a Yud. And then the two Yuds connect. Um, And he's going to explain actually later that there's a third Yud as well, and that's the connector. And that's the power of the tzaddik that actually connects God's Yud with our Yud. And that's the, the great tzaddik Was the power of yesod, which is the power of bonding, that bonds the two yuds together and creates the relationship. Uh, The unholy is lacking this whole power. And that's... But the point over here is it's not just coming to define what's holy and what's unholy. The point over here is that when God says, I want you to make me a dwelling place, he tells you to make it out of the reish, not out of the dalit. Not out of the dalit. The dalit has a yud. Why? Because the point of it here is to take the other side and convert it to holiness. So if you have within yourself a part of you that's satisfied with the $5,000 check and not the relationship, so God says, well, that's exactly the part of you that I want you to convert. (laughs) That's the part I want you to work on. Not the part that's naturally holy. Your, your, Your soul is craving a relationship. There's a part of you that loves prayer more than it loves lunch. But God says, I don't create for me a home in that part. I want the part of you that creates, that, that, that craves lunch more than prayer. And over there is where I want you to let me in. That means that while you're eating lunch, you should recognize that I'm the source of your lunch. And I'm the source of your... And over there too, thank me, connect to me, and let's attach, let's bond. So that's the whole idea that he's developing over here. He's explaining that there is a world of holy and there's the world of the unholy and with all the, with all the problems that the unholy has, it's cold, it's selfish, it's disconnected it's, and yet and yet therein over there lies the whole purpose of creation. So as we're going to follow up, but Ezra Tashem as we're going to conclude and see this um, maybe next week Thursday or um, not Monday no. Monday is going to be a partial class um, not on a Monday, but we'll see. Okay. Yeah. I'm just a little tired. Thank okay. you.